You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, I'm Robert Wright. I run the Non-Zero Foundation, which produces all the shows on Blogging Heads TV and Meaning of Life TV. We host a variety of voices, some of them pretty unorthodox, and we encourage dialogue that is sharp but civil. We think fostering constructive conversation is especially important now that America and the world are looking kind of fragile. If you agree that our mission is important, I hope you'll consider helping us shoulder the cost. You can do that by becoming one of our cherished patrons at patreon.com slash nonzero foundation. That's N-O-N-Z-E-R-O-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. Thanks. We need your help, and we deeply appreciate it. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Ari Conwade, and my guest today is Dan Brooks. Uh, Dan, could you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Dan Brooks. I'm a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and uh, almost anywhere else that will pay me. Uh, So thanks for coming on today. Uh, So I've enjoyed your pieces in the Times Magazine over the recent past, and we're going to be talking about your most recent piece, uh, which is titled How President Trump Ruined Political Comedy, uh, which I, th- I thought was really interesting and uh, is something I've been thinking about, and I've been thinking about political comedy for a while. I did an episode five years ago that was based on a piece that a writer for The Atlantic um, wrote called uh, something like Why Is There No Conservative John Stewart? And things have changed somewhat since then. Um, yes. And so I, I think this is uh, an interesting contribution. Uh, so how did, what, what was like the uh, the genesis of, of this piece? Why did you want to write it? So this piece started out as like a series of reported essays on, uh, on political comedy, on contemporary comedy that we could not get access for. Um, initially, we were going to do a... Uh, a sort of hybrid essay profile on uh, Saturday Night Live and Colin Jost and sort of the uh, the weekend update writing process. Um, and I, I, in my innocence, did not realize how uh, how closely they guard access to the the cast. Um, so that one fell through. Uh, and then just, we as, were... a, as a side note, were you? I, I know that I, the person I assume was your editor on this, Willie Staley, is kind of a yes. Colin Jost. Um, obsessive or expert or something was he did you pitch him did he pitch you or how did how did that come about we uh we came to that one together um and he is yeah he is a type of colin jost fan um and i think anyone who uh anyone who is still watching saturday night live um anyone who watches saturday night live in the modern era has to have a kind of love-hate relationship um because it's not it's not for the aficionados like in the same way that drake is not for hip-hop heads like SNL is not for comedy nerds. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's got its merits still. It's an institution, right? It is to, it is to comedy what the Super Bowl halftime show is to music. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable institution when you think about it, how long it's persisted under the leadership of the same individual and how much it seems to matter, even though it's not actually very good or funny. And most people even who watch it kind of agree that it's not very good or funny. And, but then the people who are involved are often super talented and then they go on to become mega, mega stars in, in a different realm. It, it's just a very strange 
thing. But, yeah. but that's not our main focus. <laughs> that's not our main focus. Right. <laughs> Moving on, because I do hope to someday uh, get that access. So I would like to I would like to add here that SNL is a, an admirable institution, even as it goes through ups and downs. Um, so then we were going to do uh, a story, a profile on Jesse Waters, the uh, Fox News humorist slash pundit. Um, and that was going good until they read my old blog, uh, combat blog. Um, and they, uh, they pointed to a specific post as, as being critical of Fox news. Uh, the irony was it was, I, I have been critical of Fox news. Yeah. Obviously. I, I, I'm, I'm not shocked exactly that someone might be critical of Fox news, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the irony of this particular post was that it was pretty much defending Fox news. Um, it was about, a fake screenshot that circulated in like 2016 um, that someone had mocked up. It never actually appeared on the network, um, but it appeared to be a bar graph where the, uh, the bars were getting bigger as the numbers were going down. Um, mm. And everybody was like, Oh, look at this kind of bullshit that Fox news does. Can I say, can I say that on your podcast? Yeah, you can curse freely, please. It's, That's it's good. Encouraged. They were like, look at this fuck ass shit cock that Fox <laughs> news is doing. Um, and uh, and I was like, yeah, this is you got to be on the lookout for this stuff. This was back when that was an original idea that uh, that fake news that plays into our pre-existing attitudes was dangerous instead of something that we just all accepted was going to be out there. Yeah, and, um, and that this makes me think of something that you bring up in your piece, which we'll talk about later. Which is, um, you know, uh, you hear a bit of news related to Trump, and then is it a joke? Is it real? You like the average person, it would be hard for them to, to tell whether something was invented out of whole cloth or, yeah. or something that Trump actually did. Um, so we'll, but we'll get back to that, <laughs> to, to that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fox uh, declined to give me access to Jesse Waters. Uh, I would still happily do a profile of him. Uh, this was part of a, a project that Willie and I, not even a project, a, a fantasy that Willie and I were pursuing uh, that we referred to as profile of a bad person. Um, we were trying to do, uh, Assad haters, us or not, sorry, not Assad haters. Uh, sorry, Bashar al-Assad, um, mm-hmm. Assad hater, a great person, um, Bashar <laughs> uh-huh. al-Assad, not a great person. Um, we were trying to do a profile of his United States publicist. Um, but that one, that one also didn't pan out. Interesting. Um, anyway, we had all these ideas and ultimately we, we kept circling around this idea of how, uh, at least I remember when Trump got elected and everyone was rending their garments and, and gnashing their teeth, um, people said, well, at least art is going to be really good now. Um, at least comedy is going to be really good now. And I think that uh, that has not happened. There has not been the flourishing of art and comedy that some of us hoped would occur during the first term of the Trump administration. And I think that's uh, the disappointment is one thing um, and it's not something that other people share. I think there are lots of people who feel that political comedy is better than ever right now. Um, but I think the question of like, why has it not been this, this cudgel that we could use to beat down a uniquely risible president is a, is a question worth considering. How come satire is not the force for political change that we all learned it would be in high school? <laughs> right. And um and if you were in high school when the Daily Show was in its sort of prime years, then then maybe that was also a formative influence. And so you 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 give it uh uh I'm just gonna read a excerpt from the piece that, that surprised me. Um since January twenty fifteen, 
Um, seven liberal clip shows in the Daily Show variety have premiered Full Frontal, The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj, White Snacks, Problem Areas, The Jim J- Jeffries Show, and The Break with Michelle Wolf. As of today, all of those seven but Full Frontal have been canceled. So there, there's been a, um, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood or, or New York comedy circles are trying to, you know, make something in the Daily Show mold that would be current for the Trump administration. And except for um, Samantha Bee, who was on the Daily Show and did the spinoff before um, the 2016 election, I think, or maybe it started in 2016, but definitely before the election, um, they've, they've all, they haven't been successes, at least in terms of ratings and, and have all been canceled. So there's not, so is it um, spread too thin, kind of like there's too many of these things and they all competed against each other and so no, none of them could succeed or was there like some problem inherent to what they were trying to do that has made it so they they didn't really work i think that's a good question um and for reference sam b premiered in january 2016 or rather full frontal premiered sam b right. been on on television forever at that point um i think one aspect of it that uh that we shouldn't put aside uh so that we don't like overinterpret this phenomenon is like new shows are getting greenlit and produced and then canceled after a season all the time um so you could make the same argument about like single camera dramedies right louis style shows mm-hmm. uh, where there was like a big proliferation of them and then the boom sort of collapsed in on itself um and i think the the fact that so many of them got started is a testament to people's belief that comedy would become like a very vital force during the Trump administration. Um, I think a second aspect of it is like with the coalescence of what I call the hashtag resistance, the, uh, the self-identified but not organized uh, demographic that vehemently opposes Trump and like expresses it through social media and also through media consumption, like through watching things like The Daily Show. I think the hashtag resistance was like a ready-made demographic that you could point to when you were pitching your show and say, these are the people that are going to watch it. And here's how we know there's a jillion of them. Um, and I think that was very like convincing to the people who made the decisions to, to greenlight those shows. Um, the uh, The third factor, and I think the one that the one that I personally find most interesting is like Trump looks like he should be a really good target for comedy um, until you have to like sit down and actually think of some funny Trump jokes. Um, and then you, you realize what a problem it is. It's like, it's like making fun of a clown. Like if you go to the beach and there's a guy wearing a clown suit and you kick sand on him, you do not look like the, the genius that you think you might be. <laughs> Yeah, I, I and I think that I, I I agree with that. And yeah, so on the surface level, Trump seemed like an obvious target of satire because of his many ridiculous aspects, uh, like he wears orange makeup and um, is this big fat guy and is a moron and etc. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, the tree, <laughs> the trifecta, really. Right. Um, and but it's yeah, something. But it seems like well. One thing is like, is it maybe he is such a ridiculous figure that he is the clown, and then you can't, like you said, you can't attack the clown. And if we look back towards like the um, the Daily Show's heyday in the Bush administration, uh, you know that there was a lot of kind of false piety and kind of like 
seriousness, especially related to the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq and our great moral crusades and, and so forth. And that, and the dissonance between that and sort of what was actually happening and the fact that the mainstream media went along with that narrative for a very long time made it so that, you know, Stewart, uh, John, you know, John Stewart and then Colbert were able to like satirize this in uh, a, a very successful way. And, and then with Trump, you know, there's no, there's no like dissonance. It's like, it is all on the surface and yeah. Can you, you know, throwing up, you know, throwing a pie at like the school principal or something and hanging him in the face with a cream pie is, is funny or something. And, but doing it to like the class clown doesn't, it doesn't quite work as well because he's already a joke. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up the pie throwing analogy because I was going to indulge one of my worst habits and bring up a scene from the Simpsons. Um, there's that, uh, in the episode where, um, oh God, I'm blanking on his name. How embarrassing. Cause he's one of my favorites. Uh, he plays <laughs> Niles on Frasier. Sancho um, Bob? Uh, not Sancho Bob who plays, who's Kelsey Grammer. Oh, right. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a guest from, oh, it's so. Um, wait, but, but Sancho Bob's brother is, is. Yeah. Right. Because Sancho. he actually did go the, to Princeton. Uh-huh. Um, that's, that's the uh, clown college, uh, the clown college yeah. joke. <laughs> I'll thank you not to refer to Princeton that way. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, Sideshow Bob's brother, um, whose name is just on the tip of my tongue, um, comes to town and uh, they're, they're talking about their longstanding rivalry. And it flashes back to his memory of auditioning for Krusty. And he's dressed up as like a hobo clown and he takes a pie in the face and it's not funny. Um, and Krusty says, here's a tip, kid. The sap's got to have dignity. Um, and he points to where Sideshow Bob is off stage wearing like tweed and I think reading a book. Um, and he calls out pie job for Lord Autumn Bottom. And they throw a pie and it hits Sideshow Bob and his hair springs out from under his hat. And it's funny. And that. Uh, so that's the, the, that's the origin story for, for Sideshow Bob is. Yes. Um the sap's got to have dignity is I think an important uh, rule of thumb there. Um, and I think the, uh, the conservative apparatus was so serious and like, like freedom fries kind of went right up to the line of self parody. Um, and that made it kind of a, a shot right over the plate that everyone could make jokes out of. If they had been called fuck you fries and it were like a, like a little nod uh, at how ridiculous it was, that I think would have nullified jokes about it. And this is where um, you, uh, you mentioned that Trump is a moron. And I think he, he is a moron in comparison with the resources he has been given, right? Like for a dude who went to a series of prep schools and Penn and had all of these, uh, all of these advantages. Yeah. He's, he's dramatically underperforming what he's been given. Uh, But he is also stupid like a Fox in that like, he is doing this ironized presentation, this like pro wrestling style kayfabe presentation. Um, and to, to heap another level of irony or another level of knowingness on top of that is very difficult, I think. Yeah. So, um, so kayfabe for, for people not in the know is kind of this idea from professional wrestling that the performers maintain the like act uh, on the surface um, but everyone in the audience actually knows that it's fake, but they appreciate that the, you know, the wrestlers are still pretending and violations of kayfabe 
apparently, <laughs> I actually did an episode about this a couple of years ago with the writer Owen Ellickson. It was after Trump. The first time Trump retweeted the little animation of him like body slamming someone with CNN, like the CNN logo on their head. That you know that mm-hmm. was outrageous at the time, but now looks quaint. Um, but so we're talking about Trump and professional wrestling. Obviously, Trump was like you know participated in WWF stuff at the time, and um, and yeah. So you know, is is it everyone knows? Like everyone know everyone's in on the joke, but you have to still maintain the surface level um, reality of it. And then like, you know, reality TV, which obviously is how Trump really became a national figure also has this, you know, don't you know it's fake kind of thing. And like the viewers are in on the joke that there's different levels of, of reality operating here. So Trump does play with that in a very effective way. I, I still think he is a moron, but like he, he is, you know, he's a creature of TV. He's very good at branding. I think branding is his real genius. And, um, and so he, uh, has been able to manipulate that in various ways that yeah, it, it, in which the traditional uh, daily show style joke doesn't quite fit. I mean, like thinking back to, you know, 2005 or something daily show, they would play a clip from Fox news and then, and then uh, it would cut back to John Stewart and he would make a funny face. And then mm-hmm. and everyone would laugh because he was making this face like, Whoa. Yeah, and then um, and they would tell a joke and the joke was funny also. Uh, and it was just like everyone was, you know, knew what the joke was. And it was that Foxy was obviously full of shit or whatever conservative politician was talking on screen was full of shit. And, yeah. and, and John Stewart was the one who was like saying like, the emperor has no clothes, that kind of thing. But yeah, just, so, okay, so why, <laughs> why has this... I mean, okay. We, uh, why is it not translated? We've, we, I guess we talked about it some, but um, why don't we let's let's talk about I guess Trump as a comedian and or kind of like a Don Rickles style like Borscht Belt sort of performer and and how he has like styled styled himself in that way and and how that works for him. Yeah. Um. So so in the piece, I compare him. I say that his like. His public speaking style uh, at rallies um, is is reminiscent of late career Don Rickles, and I wanna I wanna emphasize the late career part because like young Don Rickles is doing something different, um, but like the older Don Rickles had this aura about himself, and like one of the central aspects or motifs of his act was that he would just come out and be totally comfortable on stage. He was not trying to make the audience laugh, or rather, he gave the impression that he was not trying to make the audience laugh. He's just out there talking, and like it's a very slack performance. And then all of a sudden, he makes a crack. And I think like crack is a uh, an important word here because it's like the crack of a whip, right? Like the whole performance suddenly comes into tension for just a second, and it gets this big pop from the audience. And then he goes back to his like conversational meandering style um and this is this is something trump does not exactly with jokes right because like almost all of trump's jokes are those like situational non-jokes that that aren't really witticisms um they're not clever or insightful they're instead like a commentary in the moment on himself so like the kind of the kind of jokes you make with your friends where like you're sitting around the bar and you make a joke about how you can't 
you can't sustain a relationship. And it's funny because your friends all know that you've had a string of monogamous relationships that have all been unsuccessful because of your flaws. Uh Um, Just to think of an example. (laughs) Um, So it's like, it's that kind of joke, right? Where it is the audacity of the remark in that situation, the way in which Trump takes himself out of the mode that a president is supposed to speak in or a presidential candidate. And this, like, I'm not saying anything new here. Like Trump's killer app was he approached the presidency like he had won a contest, like to appear on television. Like he's just, just saying all the dumb stuff that like the dude at the end of the bar says he would say if he were running for president. Um, Mm -hmm. And people love that. I, I would love it if he hadn't won, like if Trump had, had not become president, I think we would all remember him a lot more fondly as like a very funny thing that happened. <laughs> that's yeah, it, that's interesting. It's, you know, a lot of people speculated on the alternate reality where Hillary had become president, but to think what would have happened to Trump and how he would have been viewed by the average person is interesting. So, you know, some interesting things. One is he does a lot of physical comedy. Like he uh, did an impression of Michael Bloomberg where he just like ducked down behind yeah. the podium uh, which is you know. funny it's really funny yeah there's i mean there's not a lot of presidents we can remember doing physical comedy gags like that and he, he i mean he famously did the thing where he mocked the uh, reporter who had like a dystonia or something yeah, um not funny that, that was less funny but that's the kind of i mean he makes funny faces um he i mean he definitely uh is yeah sort of like you know, he's, he's not like stayed like I, in this, a previous episode, I was talking to a professor who studies performance studies and he noted this moment in 2016 where Trump said something like, you know, if I need to be, I can be, I can be presidential if I need to be. And then he started being like, I'm the, I'm the president. And like, and like everyone in the crowd was laughing because they're like, this is so funny that he'll like pretend to be serious and, and that'll be a joke. Um, and another thing you note is that he, you know, he rarely laughs. Um, I can't, I can't really recall him uh, laughing on <laughs> on camera at any specific thing. Um, so, I mean, it's not like a stand-up comedian usually laughs at their own jokes. That's kind of seen, seen as hacky or something. But, um, you know, uh, it would be interesting to look back at like the Comedy Central roast of him or something and see how he was reacting to the various, you know, insults that were. <laughs> that were uh, sent his way. And I remember, that, you know, long after that happened, someone who was involved with the production said that Trump um, said they could make fun of, you know, anything about him, like the hair and the makeup and stuff, but they couldn't make fun of how much money he actually had. That was, that was the one thing he wasn't going to allow. Um, Interesting. So, so he knows, he knows he's a figure of fun in multiple ways and plays with that. And I guess there's some, but there, at least whenever this happened, like 2010 or something before the birther stuff, he, uh, you know, he, he, he had a red line um, about his net worth that, that wasn't going to be crossed. Very interesting. And I do think like this is obviously Trump's wealth is the foundation of his whole shtick, right? Um, he's like, I'm an eccentric billionaire. Um, and the eccentric billionaire who doesn't have a billion dollars is just a weirdo. Like he's right. not. Yeah. Daddy Warbucks is just bald if he loses money. Yeah, and uh, you know the only uh, well, you know, one of the few true things Marco Rubio has ever said was if you know Trump wasn't born to a wealthy family, he'd be selling uh, watches on you know Canal Street. Uh, yeah, like that. Like that's just the type of person he is. But he you know lucked into this um, uh, inherited wealth, and obviously does have these other skills related to self promotion and branding and stuff. Um, 
Okay, let's let let's talk a little bit about like how there there has been a change in sort of like how liberals understand comedy and conservatives understand comedy during this era. And you note that well, you, you talked to the head writer of the Daily Show, um, Dan Amira, who used to be a journalist. He used to write for New York Magazine. And, used to be edited by Willie, in fact. Oh, okay, that's interesting. From the talk section. And um, and yeah, I remember when I used to read him. I remember, and I followed him on Twitter. I remember when he announced he was leaving for the Daily Show, and I was like, oh, you know, he's not going to be uh, writing good pieces anymore. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's interesting in itself that you know, someone someone who was a a, a journalist ascended to. So this position when in the beginning it was the Daily Show was mainly like a media critique sort of thing and was just making fun of weird stuff that appeared on, on cable news. But um, you talk about the kind of jokes that land these days on, on the Daily Show and other type shows and how they can't be like too sarcastic because then people then the liberal audience maybe won't understand that there's a joke. Or, or can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so this was like by far the most, uh, the biggest surprise of the reporting process for me. Um, the uh, the one that I found myself telling people about at parties during the brief brief time when there were still parties after I had completed the reporting. <laughs> um, but uh, so the uh, the Daily Show's audience has gotten a lot larger in the last five years. Um, it dipped; they lost uh, approximately one third of their audience when John Stewart left. Um, and then they got it back plus a bunch more. Um, and the demographic shifted a little younger, uh, but mostly it just widened. They just got a lot more people watching the show. Um, and I think there are like a, a lot of factors potentially contributing to that. And I don't really have the expertise to say what it was. Um, I think Trevor Noah being like a very, very charismatic host and like a very skilled showman has a lot to do with it. Um, but like with, a the broader the audience gets, the harder it is to write jokes for them, right? Um, like the hardest thing in the world would be to write jokes for the Super Bowl um, or something along those lines mm-hmm. that like a very large audience. This is where Steve Martin is a genius, right? Because he writes jokes jokes that exist outside of political persuasion or like current events or any of it. Um, I think Jack Handy is another example of a humorist oh, no. who writes these, these jokes that seem to operate outside of time. Um, anyway, I, uh, I asked them, like, is there a j- kind of joke that you have learned not to do? Um, like a joke that, that blew up in your face and like gave you a sense of who this new audience is. And uh, their answer was sarcasm, which really surprised me. Um, Cause the, the Stephen Colbert character and the Colbert rapport obviously were were built almost entirely around irony, like this deep irony. Yeah. And maybe I'm misremembering it, but I thought of irony as a uh, like a key part of the John Stewart Daily Show's presentation. Um, and if not irony, then at least it's it's deformed sibling sarcasm. Um, but like they. Uh, their position was like people would misinterpret sarcasm. Either they wouldn't get it and they'd be like, wait a minute, these guys are saying the opposite of what I believe. Um, <laughs> or they would get it, but they were like, now is not the time for, for making light of this, which is such a, like, it was a mind blowing moment for me. And they, they absolutely like, like Dan said sarcasm and Jen Flans was like, oh yeah, definitely can't do sarcasm. Um, or at least have to work up to it and make it like very clear before you start getting into sarcasm. 
Um, and that's really interesting. It's to me, it signals something about the way the new daily show audience has like come to think of comedy and what it's supposed to do. And I think we can see this trend writ large in stand up and in other forms of comedy where the, the difference between comedy and drama, um, is not always like the, the relationship to irony and sincerity or like insight or this and that. Um, but like drama is false and comedy is a true expression of the comedian's beliefs. Um, this is a, this is a crazy idea I've been thinking about in the shower. I'm not sure it's actually true. Um, but if you watch something like Nanette, um, it's Uh characterized not by irony, but by great sincerity. Right. And also Nanette wasn't very funny (laughs) in my, in my opinion. Not to me. Um, people liked it, but was it, was it actually funny? I mean, obviously humor is subjective. Um, but that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'll have to chew on that one. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, the, there's some epigram, epigram or something that like, you know, about fiction, like fiction is the lie that tells the truth or, or something along those lines. Um, and yeah, and you can think, I, I mean, so, I mean, something you don't explicitly touch on is like, um, you know, the liberals and the left have gotten sort of more broadly sensitive, uh, to offense against various groups than they were 20 years ago. And, there's a lot of things where it's like, you know, I, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts and they often will like mention uh, like a movie that came out in the eighties or something. And they'll be like, yeah, it's kind of problematic, but blah, 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 blah. Like they, they need to throw that in there that like, okay, there's some jokes that like would not make it today because they're racist or sexist or whatever, or homophobic. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, we know, like we're, we know that we we're woke or whatever term you want to put in there. Woke obviously is, has become a uh, very freighted term, but, um, yeah, just like we we recognize that this particular joke in Coming to America like would not be told today, but it's still a really funny movie if you can like look past that. So that so that seems to be a kind of change. And then on the on the right, there's a sort of mirror change of being like more open to offensive things. And if you get called out on it being offensive or over the top, saying oh, it's just a joke, you know, can't like why are you so serious? You're such a buzzkill, you know. There was that famous tweet that from that awful uh, guy. What I can remember, Prison Planet is his handle. What is, I can remember his real name. Oh Prince, yeah, Paul Prince, Joseph Watson. Yes, that's his name, and he said conservatism is the new punk rock. You know, and they tried that; it didn't really work out. But but and then Trump plays with this, where he says something outrageous, and then if it's too outrageous, he says it was just a joke, like injecting bleach into your body if you have COVID. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, so I, I've talked for a while there. What, what, what would you say about that? Yeah, so this is um, this is in some ways a recreation of the dynamic that existed in the '90s, right? Um, when uh, when the phrase political correctness first emerged, um, and it was a complete straw man at that time. Like it was, uh, I don't know, like uh, Bill Maher's original show was called Politically Incorrect. Yes. I always confuse it with the one he has now, which is a similar title. Real time. That's right. Not as good a title. Um, so, and, incorrect. and he kind of got, he didn't get canceled directly for this, but he said something, you know, the thing he said was that the, um, I guess Ari Fleischer or someone had said that the, uh, 9-11 hijackers are cowards. And, and he said, no, you actually have to be kind of brave to like fly a plane into a building and know you're going to incinerate yourself. Um, and that was in part what got him, you know, got that show. 
kick off the yard. Yeah. He doesn't joke. And I, uh, so first of all, you do not under any circumstances got to hand it to him. But right, um, those, yeah, those men. An edgy thing to say, even today, you know, to, t- to talk about that. And he said it like in late 2001 or early 2002. So, you know, props yeah. to or whatever. They, they did not. Um, <laughs> like what they did was bad. Um, and the, the cause that they, that they supported by doing it was nearly as bad. Um, however, like those, those men showed more conviction than I ever have um, in terms of like, you know, I have these strongly hold, held political beliefs, some of which are quite radical. And the only thing protecting me is that I never meaningfully act on them. Um, <laughs> but like, and that's a moment where like Bill Mark told the truth and it hosed him. Um, but that's thrilling, right? Like this is what, uh, this is what we would all like to do. Like those of us who are in the, the truth telling business. Yeah. Speaking um, truth to power is what, you know, what the, the journalist considers like the, the ultimate kind of act that, the, that they could do. Yeah. And, it and, is, the comedian, one, and the comedian too, in, in some ways. Yeah. It's one of the best things you can do, but one of the smartest things you can do is pretend to speak truth to power, like speak a truth that we all actually agree with, but we still regard as forbidden or like mm-hmm. something frowned upon by power. Um, I think something I profiled Norm Macdonald for the magazine a few years ago. Oh, um, I, I, I read that. I, did, I forgot that, that you wrote that piece. Yeah. I very much like Norm's comedy. Um, and Talk about I, irony. I mean, yeah, he's an ironist. Yeah. Him and Letterman might be the two most ironic, you know, public figures of the past yeah. like, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and I, so I love his act and I, I really enjoyed talking with him and spending time with him. I think he's a, I think he's a great guy. And, and David Letterman described him as genuinely eccentric. Um, and I, I think he is that too. Um, but something he said that really stuck with me is it's not, it's not progressive to believe the stuff that we all believe now. Like the, uh, the stuff that we consider progressive, the stuff that we call progressive today, was meaningfully progressive in the eighties. Um, but is now like a consensus or a near consensus position. Um, like once, once 40% of the population believes it, it's not necessarily progressive. Um, and I think there is like a, a thick middle area for pretending that what you're saying is subversive, pretending that it's like a righteous declaration of truth in the face of power. But in fact, you're echoing a popular sentiment. Um, and that this is like a very robust American form of kitsch. Um, punk rock is the new punk rock in this way, right? Like pretending that having a mohawk and facial piercings is transgressive, even though that's pretty standard now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and so some people who, you know, have kind of taken up this banner are uh, Jesse Waters, as, as you mentioned, who's this Fox News guy. He used to be on, wasn't he on O'Reilly? He was like, the lighter side yeah. of Bill O'Reilly back in the day. He and did then, like man on the street interviews called Waters World. Yes, and Waters then it became World. A, whole, a whole show called Waters World where they don't do too many man on the street interviews anymore. Yeah, probably people would spit on him if they, if they saw him on the street. Uh, times have changed. And then um, Milo Yiannopoulos is another. And then this guy, uh, Stephen Crowder, who's more of a YouTube online guy. And if you haven't heard his name, you've probably seen this meme that he inadvertently created where he's sitting at a like a folding table outside on the college campus. And he and it's, it says like, uh, can convince me I'm wrong or change my mind or something. Change um, my mind. Yeah. So yeah, he, his stick, at least at first was sort of, you know, going to college campuses and like arguing with, um, like, you know, 
19 year old girls with green hair about intersectionality or, or something like that and, and embarrassing them. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting. So looking back on that, you know, five years ago, where's the conservative John Stewart? And at the time, you know, there were some attempts to create basically a conservative clone of the daily show. There was one called the 30 minute hour or something like that. That was on Fox, yeah. but was canceled very quickly. It was, it was, you know, total crap. And they just, so that, that format of like mocking, you know, a host sitting at a desk and they're pretending to be an anchor or something that didn't seem to work from the conservative perspective. But then these other people have achieved some measure of success, although Unopolis flamed out, um, yeah. no, pun in- no pun intended, um, by uh, joking about pedophilia or, or something like that. That was finally a bridge too far. Um, and and his uh, his star has faded uh, since then. But Waters is he, Waters is a co-host on the Five. This uh, like yeah. 5 p.m. Fox News show. And uh, Crowder, I assume, is making a good living off of Patreon and YouTube ads and stuff like that. So that so that what can you see what these people are doing differently than what conservatives are trying to do? You know, five or ten um, years ago, it's a spectrum. I think that. Uh... So Crowder, so at one point, this was going to be a Stephen Crowder profile too. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Crowder did not, they, it seems like his staff is in the midst of a long running dispute about who their media contact is, like just who they're actually in charge of. Um, and I, like, I can, I communicated with their, with their lawyer for a while and then he dropped it too eventually. I don't think they wanted to talk to the Times. Um, uh, let me just, just a quick side note. I think I may have mentioned this on the show before, but, um, a couple months ago, I got an email address. I got an email from the publicist for, uh, Dave Rubin asking if I wanted to have him on my uh, podcast because he has had a new book coming out. And I said, um, sure, but I, sh- I replied to the publicist, sure, but I should tell you that he blocked me on Twitter after I called him an idiot. And, um, and I didn't hear back, uh, from that. So, Bad publicist. He should have tried to bring you back. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want that, but but he is. I mean, but uh, he's another t- of this type, and he was like a comedian originally, or claimed to be a comedian or something, um, a stand up, and then he transitioned into doing these like long form interviews with, you know, uh, Milo and, and and other types, and I don't know, race realists or whatever, <laughs> other like online weirdos. Yeah, my um without without slandering Steven Crowder and like pretending to understand his motivations in a way that I simply cannot, uh I find his show to be genuinely racist. Um they are they are obsessed with these sort of identity categories like race and sexual orientation and they they really enjoy tweaking them like sort of in the name of tweaking political correctness, but in my opinion the jokes are only funny if you find people of other races inherently funny. Um, or, or gay men inherently funny. Um, and I, uh, you know, certainly there was a time in my life when I did. Um, and then by eighth grade, I had sort of moved past that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that like, um, I think there is like humor to be done in those veins. I think in an ideal society, we would, uh, we would recognize gay men and non-white people as fully human in a way that allowed us to satirize them as individuals without feeling like we were satirizing them as a group. But that is not the world that we live in. And I don't think that there is, I don't think it's a good idea for a straight white man like Steven Crowder to base so much of his comedy around doing a Chinese voice or doing a gay voice. 
Uh, like at a certain point, Occam's razor suggests that it's not that you're doing like a deeply ironized indictment of a society that is too concerned with identity category. It seems more likely that you're just kind of racist. Um, yeah, but so I've actually never, I mean, I've seen Crowder on Twitter and I, I maybe I've seen just short clips. I've never, I've never seen an extended <laughs> version of him. I mean, is it akin to sort of like an 80s comedian like Andrew Dice Clay? Like it's just saying things that everyone kind of agrees is offensive and then they're, but they're laughing anyway, that, that sort of thing. Or so like Andrew Dice Clay, I understood as doing a character in a way that that Crowder isn't quite um, an example that I cited in the, uh, in the times piece is the Kevin Ip bit um, back. Uh, this was in like April uh, Nike announced that it was closing American retail stores due to coronavirus, um, but it did not close stores in China. And like Steven and his various co-hosts like talked about this for a while. And then they did like a jerky boy style call in gag, a crank call gag um, where he called Nike customer service claiming to be a man named Kevin Ip who identified himself as Chinese um, and then like sort of excoriated customer service about how it was racist to do this. Um, And the voice is just like, I wouldn't do that voice. Um, <laughs> I don't think, even if I, even if I thought I had like a spot on Chinese accent that I had like pieced together, um, I wouldn't do it. But like his was a, um, I forget which, uh, which crank movie has the, uh, the secondary character who's like an Asian woman and she has really long nails and she's just like, it's a very offensive character. It sounded uh-huh. like he was doing an impression of that lady. Um, it's just okay. a real, and he, he committed to it. I'll give him that. He's, he does like commit to the performance. Um, but it's, it's horrible. Like, it's just, it's not very funny. And like, if I, I don't know, if I were Chinese, it would probably make me mad instead of sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does, he does a lot of that. He did a sketch called my little Tupac, um, where it was like my little pony dolls, but they had been painted brown. Um, and then it was like two white people playing with the dolls, but they were wearing like do rags and like grills. And like, that doesn't even track. Like, it's not like kids who played with my little pony dressed up as ponies. Um, it's just a, it's a whole, it's a yeah, whole thing. And like I mean, to, I mean, um, Tupac has allegedly been dead for 25 years. So, um, yeah, you know that's that not the most current reference. Would it maybe that's the, the first? <laughs> See, I would black, say too black, soon. Yeah, first black person's name you thought of or something. But um, okay, so he does broad racial humor that maybe would have you know flown on like um, morning zoo crew kind of stuff in the eighties or nineties. Um, and there's not. He, I mean, he isn't he Canadian um, also. Yeah, I um, believe so. Uh-huh. It's always interesting to me when there's people who. Um, you know, are in another country and then like get themselves deeply involved in uh, our country's politics, even though like they're still in that other country. Like one of these people is, I only learned recently this strange online person, Ian Miles Chong or Cheong. Yeah. yeah actually deeply lived, strange person. He lives in Malaysia. He's li- never lived in the, in the United States, but uh, comments constantly. He's a conservative kind of he came up through like the Gamergate stuff. Uh, he lives in Malaysia. So, I mean, why does, why does he care about uh, goings on <laughs> in American politics media? But anyway, um, the, you know, you made me think of, I think it was either the very first, or the very second episode of the Colbert Report. He did this bit in which he did a very offensive Chinese accent um, called, with a character called Ching Chong Ding Dong, 
And and the I joke was that, that it was so over the top racist that you couldn't um, think it was serious. I, 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 at least that's one interpretation of the joke. And mm-hmm. and then um, and this was there from the very beginning. And it was supposedly like a it was like the camera was still rolling during a commercial. He asked for he asked for an assistant for some tea because his throat is, is a little sore. And then he drinks it and then he starts doing this kind of you know like 1940s era like racist caricature of a Chinese person. And then like years and years later, so that would have been 2005 or, or so. And years and years later, um, this came up again when a woman whose name I can't remember started a hashtag called fire, fire Colbert, I think yeah, um, I after, after he got the show on CBS saying, you know, he's racist against Asian Americans. So it's interesting to look at that as, you know, everyone, everyone quote unquote was laughing at that joke and got what the point was in 2005, but that probably wouldn't have flown, you know, in, in 2020 anymore. And so, so more, mores have, de- have definitely changed. Yeah, I would say the Ching Chong Ding Dong sketch was a real 2005 style mistake. Um, <laughs> right. And then like viewing it from the modern perspective, I'm like, yeah, just don't do it, man. Like it's like, I don't know, the uh, ironized racism. It's funny because it's ironic is like, no, it's funny because you're doing a funny voice. And like all manner of funny voices, I think are a cornerstone of comedy. And like, we have realized that the funny voice based on like a different, a non-white ethnicity um, is just not, it's too easy. Like, right. The danger of racism is like, it's everybody's first idea. Um, that's not, that's not the danger of racism. I think there are many more serious problems that come along with racism. Uh, now, that I, now that I review my own remarks, um, but like one problem of racism is that like when you don't have an idea, that's the idea you go to and you do it when you don't have the idea for a joke. And when you don't have an idea about what kind of person this is, who's walking down the street towards you, uh, like it's a substitute for, for more nuanced thinking. And I think like, I think that's why in 2020 we've, we've realized that jokes like ching chong, ding dong, even though they're not intended as racist still don't, don't work. Yeah. I mean, it's the, you know, making fun of someone else because they're different than you is, you know, the, a, a preschooler's joke, basically, like that's the bully, you know, the bully's joke in when you're five years old, and it is, you know, it is Trump's a big part of Trump's shtick is, you know, uh, little little Mayor Mike, you know, he's short, so he's different than me. I'm tall, he's short, so that's funny, and I'm going to make fun of him because of that. Or, um, I mean, he doesn't always, you know, he, he goes for character-based insult in addition to physical physical-based insult, but. Um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he, his, his, usually his jokes don't operate on <laughs> complex levels. Although you know this weird thing that he said when he was talking about, um, the epidemiological modeling, um, of the coronavirus. And then he kind of just like inserted, he says something like, I don't know a lot about models or at least that kind of model. Yeah. And, yeah. and then kind of kept on going. And so that's just, a, I mean, you know, who knows what is going on in his head. That's a strange joke to make when you're talking about tens of thousands of people already being dead and modeling the number of infections or deaths or whatever. And, and then he's just met, dropping the fact that he used to fuck models in the seventies and eighties. I guess he still does yeah. a model, you know, Melania was a model. So although who knows how <laughs> much they're actually fuck fucking her. these days. Um, yeah. at least, it happened at least once probably. So, but yeah, so his, his type of humor in some ways is very uh, simplistic, you know, I'm a, a bully kind of thing. 
but then also, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, I shouldn't call it simplistic because he, he like, he is the clown. Like he wears makeup. He has crazy hair. He like has this outfit. Like he has a signature outfit that he wears almost all the time. The dark suit with the long red tie. Um, and you know, and he does goofy, he does like goofy movements and, and so forth. And then, you know, so but it's also the insult, <laughs> insult comedian. Um, so, is there anything that you think like ties all this together? I mean, certainly no president has ever acted like this before. Is there anyone? Can you think of anyone else who's ever in history who's ever acted this way before? Um. Yeah, I think that like. Um. So certainly he's unprecedented among presidents. Um. I don't think. I don't think anybody even comes close. No. Um. And maybe maybe that's just the paucity of my understanding of American history. But I think like I, you would be hard put. Maybe the closest you get is Jimmy Carter, who uh, who's like a single term governor of Georgia, comes in after the the Nixon and Ford administrations um, and does like a, a just folks approach um, where like he's going to he, for example, reorients U.S. foreign policy around humanitarian concerns and like a an ethical foreign policy rather than one driven by perceived national security interests. Um, like he does like a kind of outsider thing in a way, although how much of an outsider can you be once you've governed Georgia? Uh, but like he, he's maybe the closest analog I can think of um, in the modern era. Although obviously he's not trying to be funny and he is not mean spirited in the way that, that Trump is. Um but I think uh, your assessment of that Trump is is a clown in the classical sense, I think, is is pretty insightful uh, because he does like the clown. The clown dresses up like that for a reason. Right. He's not a he's not a moron. It's not like he thinks this is a cool way to dress. Um, but by sort of like embodying it, by embodying comedy, by uh, by putting it on the same way the jester puts on the cap with the bells on it. Um, he sort of creates this, this idea where like funny is everything outside of me and I'm going to like zero out my dignity so that I can identify the quality of dignity in others as something to be laughed at. Um, and I think that like the, uh, a recurring joke in, oh man, I hope I don't get this wrong. It's either in the stench of Honolulu by Jack Handy or in the Frank Burley detective novels written by John Schwartzwelder, the uh, Schwartzwelder rather, the Simpsons writer. Um, John Schwartzwelder has self-published a series of novels about a detective called Frank Burley. Um, And Frank Burley is basically like a a sociopathic, a more sociopathic Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson, if he were not tempered by five other writers. Uh Um, And, uh, a character that Frank Burley is very interested in is like a, the sort of book within the book is this character called muscular, angry clown. Um, and the, uh, the, to me, that's like an inherently funny character. Cause like the one thing the clown can't be is like jacked and badass, right? Like it's the, I don't know. This it's the one role the rock couldn't play. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think like the clown cannot simultaneously be cool or imposing or dignified. Um, and I think like what uh, one of Trump's great insights, whether he had it instinctively or thetically, um, is his realization that like that element of dignity is the thing people like least about the presidency. 
Um, it's the thing that the political class considers the most important, but the dudes at the bar are mad at the president for not acknowledging that he is just a person, I think. Um, and Trump, I don't know, my, uh, my theory, which I've just spun out off the cuff here, has some holes in it, one of which is like Trump is also constantly aggrandizing himself and portraying himself as like cool and smart. He's and the best. Like, he's the, in any category, he's the best. Yeah, yeah, physically fit, even though he, he, he said, at one point he said he like could have been a major league uh, baseball player and et cetera. I mean, so yeah, thinking, I've never thought about, this is interesting about dignity. And if there is, you know, if you had to boil down Barack Obama into one word, it might be dignity. And Tons of dignity. Yeah, he's a very, I, I, maybe his enemies wouldn't acknowledge this, but he, he seems like a very dignified person. He always carries himself in a very careful way, always composed. Um, and, so for him, yeah, for, for the, uh, antithesis of that to, you know, come directly afterwards in the way, in the same way that like, in a lot of ways, Obama was the antithesis of, of, uh, of Bush is, you know, <laughs> thematically appropriate. Um, I want to, let, let, let's mention the, the thing that I, uh, teased at the beginning, which is the, the incident with the, um, the, the hero dog. Um, yeah. Could you, uh, could you recount that briefly? Yeah. So, um, Trump tweeted, uh, I'm not going to remember when this was. Um, it was, it was right after Baghdadi. It was, uh, yeah. the, you know, the caliph, self, <laughs> self-appointed or whatever caliph of the Islamic State was, uh, you know, was killed in this, killed himself with a suicide vest or something in this raid. And a dog, a military dog was involved in, in this somehow. Yeah, Conan, um, a, uh, a golden retriever, I believe, which is like, there's something about a No, I think it's a, um, it's a, uh, German, a German shepherd, I think. That's usually, oh, okay. usually, military dogs are usually either German shepherds or Belgian Malinois or something like that. Yeah, the there's something unholy about teaching a retriever to kill. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how aggressive <laughs> those, those dogs can be. Who knows? <laughs> Not like regular killing, which is one of the holiest things a person can do. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so Conan, this military dog that was instrumental in some way in the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, Trump tweets a picture of him putting the Medal of Honor around the dog's neck. And the the only other content in the tweet is just American hero in all caps. Um, and I saw it and I was like, this is fucked up. Um, and just by chance, I was like, this is too fucked up to be true. And I, and I did a Google image search and the image came from the conservative website, the daily wire, which had photoshopped it. Uh, because at that time there was some chatter about giving the dog the medal of honor. Um, and dog that kills a terrorist is what passes for a feel good story in those circles. Um, but like Trump tweeted like just the photograph of himself giving the medal of honor to the dog and this caption. And, um, my wife, who is like very, very smart, um, uh, despite the fact that she married me, like one of the smartest people that I know, um, saw the picture on Facebook. One of her relatives had shared it and she believed for the rest of the day that Trump had given the Medal of Honor to a dog. Um, and, uh, I forget the name of the writer. I believe it was John Brodigan. Um, he's one of the people who writes for the Louder with Crowder website, Stephen Crowder's podcast website um, wrote about this and was like sort of making fun of the New York times and uh, Jim Acosta for reporting that the picture had been doctored. Um, and he, he said, I believe you'd have to be an idiot to think this photo was real. Um, and this, I think 
cuts to the heart of something that Trump and like conservatives, new conservatives um, are doing very successfully, um, which is using this sort of ambiguous irony to create an, an us and them delineation with uh, mainstream media, media that is, as I put it in the piece, unequipped to cover an ironic precedent um, on one side, the them side, people who don't get it. And then the us side, people who do recognize that stuff like this is not a lie, but a joke. Um, and I, the Times, uh, uh, an outlet for which I have the utmost respect, I think it's the best newspaper in the country, um, is like not good in its news reporting um, at distinguishing between lies and other kinds of statements that aren't true. Um, such as ironic jokes. Um, and I think the, the qualities that make the Times not good at that are the same qualities that make it good at everything else, like the very scrupulous reporting and like not assuming a perspective that the reader is going to have that, that is not, not necessarily grounded. Um, but yeah, I think this is, uh, I think the dog example is like Trump telling a lie that his supporters identify as a joke but that objective news media have to identify as like not necessarily a lie, but an untruth. Yeah. I mean, Trump has done, so this, this must have happened like late 2019. So before the pandemic and I, I, you know, if, if you had just stopped a person on the street and said, Trump gave a medal to a dog, they would probably think, Oh, okay. That, you know, like that probably happened. Like he's done yeah. so many strange things. And so it's such a strange man that, you know, um, truth, falsehood, sincerity, uh, sarcasm, you know, who the hell knows anymore. And if you had told someone, you know, a year ago, um, Trump is going to tell people to inject bleach or put, you know, use bleach inside their bodies to fight off an illness, they would have said that, you know, that's, that has to be a joke. Like there's, there's no way that can happen. Um, and when he said that, I mean, it's hard to know. I think, you know, it, it, of course, it can't get inside his brain. It's hard to know how he puts this stuff together. I think he, it's, it's very like stream, stream consciousness and whatever. You know, someone, someone was talking about using bleach to like clean your kitchen to disinfect it. And then he just heard bleach and made the connection like, oh, what if you use bleach inside? And so that was probably as deep as it goes. And then, so he probably believed it when he said it. And then probably 20 seconds later, he, he forgot that he had ever said it to begin with. And it was just such a, you know, it was, it was so over the toply insane that he had to say he was just kidding about it. Um, and I don't know what his supporters exactly thought was really happening in that, in that moment. <laughs> um, whether it was a joke or he is a crazy person or, or, or what. Um, but yeah, but there's been, you know, the, the, the thing where he's, you know, that, po that picture where he, where they got the spread of the fast food, uh, to feed like the, the winning AFC team or, or no, it was a college yeah. team, wasn't it? The, the mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, the college champions of basketball or football or something. And, you know, he's, he looks happier than he's ever been. And he's standing for the Fortune Lincoln and there's a bunch of Big Macs and stuff, uh, spread out before him. You know, that, you know, if you had shown that to someone, 10 years ago, they would be like, wow, it's a good Photoshop. Like, this is what a silly thing <laughs> that's happening here. Yeah. But like, it really did happen. So, so I, and I, I, I think this like matrix, this sort of like miasma of general, like they're not lies and they're not, but they're not true. Um, like is a, a maddening place for most of us to operate 
uh, but is a great place to operate if you're a fucking liar. Um, and like, in addition to being an ironist and like all these other things, my impression of the president is that he is a liar. Um, he, uh, he is a recognizable type of rich guy. If you have ever, if you have ever worked with people in that like social stratum, um, he's, uh, he's definitely a type. And I think that like he is, he's a bullshit artist, um, in the sense of, I don't know, remember, uh, I think Harry G. Frankfurt was the name of the professor. Yes. Wrote that on book bullshit. on bullshit. Yeah. yeah. A book that seemed like the most important thing to happen in 2008. <laughs> um, but, uh, but in many ways ahead of his time. And I think like, like Trump is a bullshitter, uh, in that sense of the term, right? The, the bullshitter, uh, as if I read this, it's this little book. It's really like an essay. And as I recall, it was the bullshitter doesn't care about truth or lies. A liar cares about truth because they're going against the truth. The bullshitter is just saying whatever they need to say in that moment and, and truth or falsehood doesn't matter to them. And that seems to describe Trump to a T is he doesn't care whether something is, is true or not. It's just whatever he needs to say in the moment or whatever gets him to the next day. That's what he's got to do. And uh, yeah, he, he definitely lives in the moment um, in, in a lot of ways. That maybe is an admirable way, way to live. Um, so Okay, I want to. So I have a, a theory uh, that I want to run by you, which is that um, as it's become more clear that Trump is going to, in all probability, lose the election and fade from the scene, the the uh, people on the right are moving back towards the sort of moral censoriousness um, that we saw in the '90s and during the Bush administration. And the what I've seen this in little in little ways, but the thing that's um, the most uh, visible one was this um, this movie Cuties that um, aired oh, on yeah. Netflix and is a French film that involves um, preteen girls dancing in I guess lascivious ways. I haven't actually seen it, but um, for for some reason this really made some group of people go crazy, and they said it was you know pornography, pedophilic pornography. Um, a county in Texas indicted uh, Netflix, and I think the director. Uh, recently, this has <laughs> happened within the past couple of days um, for, you know, distribution of pornography for this movie that like won a prize at Sundance. And Ted Cruz um, sent a letter to the Justice Department saying there should be an investigation about this. Um, and then, associate, I mean, this is kind of parallel or, or tied in a loose way to QAnon, uh, where the uh, the motivating force behind QAnon is that um, it, the deep state, there's deep state cabal of pedophiles and cannibals who are kidnapping and abusing and ritually uh, murdering and eating children. So mm-hmm. the, the idea that we need to protect children, uh, you know, connect, connects them and that children are being exploited um, by powerful figures uh, uh, for sex or for to consume their adrenochrome, which supposedly gives you like hallucinogenic powers or something or other. Um, yeah. So that all sounds totally insane, but like a lot of people <laughs> seem to believe that, these days. So I, I sense that, so, so Trump is like this totally amoral figure and he revels in his, that he's not constrained by shame or any of the traditional like moral strictures that keep normal people like, you know, more or less acting on the straight and narrow. And, and, you know, that, that's not a, that's not a natural fit with the American conservative movement, which is much more like religiously based and, you know, wants to like live in as like traditional family values and doesn't usually celebrate people who have sex with porn stars and playboy playmates yeah. and groping women and so on and so forth. So I think, so, so they've kind of been jerked towards this, 
Trumpian, you know, like uh, into like celebrating Trumpianism because they, they just love him so much. But once he's gone and he's going to be gone some way eventually, I, I feel like things are going to revert towards a, a more old, like eighties or nineties sort of, you know, moral, you know, everything is, uh, you know, we need cr- good Christian values uh, sort of thing. I think you're, uh, I think you're onto something there. Um, I have, Certainly in my lifetime, people have gotten more worked up about pedophilia. Um, and this process, it's not like, it's not like people were fine with it before. Um, but the, the pedophile as the central figure in conspiracies like QAnon, um, and its progenitor, Pizzagate, um, I think reflects, uh, so my, my theory, uh, I love unfalsifiable theories. I don't know if you noticed this. <laughs> um, but my theory is like pedophilia is one of those things that everybody can agree on. Um, like, and it's also a type of crime or a type of transgression, uh, that it's very difficult to empathize with. Um, in that, like, when I hear that, when I hear about somebody who killed somebody, I'm like, man, murder is wrong. Don't do murder. But also, I've been very angry at someone and wanted to hurt them. Um, and like, I can see, I can make the connection, right, between that moment of rage and shooting a guy because I came home and I found him in bed with my wife or something like that. Um, it's a, it's a crime you can relate to. And most crimes are like that. But I've never been so angry that I was sexually attracted to a child. Like, it's a, it's or, a completely. Or that- I mean, can, the fact that cannibalism is tied into QAnon is, I mean, pedophilia and cannibalism maybe are the two big, you know, yeah. like, like, or incest maybe would be the trifecta, but like the, you know, the big ones that sort of, you know, almost every human society would, um, would caution against. Yeah, um, frowned upon. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a bad I think, I think you're right that the ascendance of Trump has forced a large part of the Republican base into this moral gray area. Um, and I... I think you've seen that in like professional, like lifelong politicians who ultimately just got on board with Trump because what he was doing was working and it meant power for the Republican Party. Um, I think Ted Cruz is a shining example of that. Yeah. Um, Trump personally insulted his wife. Um, and yet yeah, he, he, he called his wife ugly or at least impl- heavily implied in a tweet that his wife was ugly. Um, yeah. And, 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 and also, when, I also said that his father was involved in, in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which is a pretty wild thing to, to say. Yeah. Yeah, like he was trying to provoke Ted Cruz. Um, and at the end of the day, Ted Cruz got on board. He, he hopped on the Trump train because it's a train that goes to power and to a lesser extent wealth. Um, and I think that a lot of, I can't speak for evangelicals. I'm not, not an evangelical Christian myself. Uh, but I think a lot of those evangelicals who considered themselves values voters had to swallow a pretty big pill um, to, to get behind Donald Trump, who is not a values president, um, not a values person. Um, and I think the like righteous condemnation of pedophilia, the, the association of pedophilia with Democrats so that the choice becomes not between your principles and Donald Trump, but between Donald Trump and pedophilia, mm-hmm. um, reflects cannibalistic, cannibalistic pedophilia. Yeah, this is, not your normal, this is not your normal yeah. everyday pedophilia. And uh, yeah. what's strange is that there actually was a case of a very uh, wealthy and influential man who was a pedophile or, you know, the, a febophile, whatever, whatever the hell, you know, was having sex with uh, teenage girls uh, against their will, seemingly, and, uh, and it happened to be very good friends with uh, Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. So, yeah. so, that, so that's strange. And it was kind of going on, like, 
more kind of out in the open, but I guess, but it was like, uh, you know, it was elite people and, and rich people and, you know, um, Steve Pinker and, uh, and, uh, Matt Groening apparently took it, you know, did you, you know, that he took a, a, a ride on the, uh, Lolita Express and, uh, someone. I, I and, wish and, I did not know that. Yes. This is, the, a, this is something that the, um, uh, the, the Doughboys podcast, they, they mention very often, um, that Groening was, uh, rode at least one time on Epstein's jet and a, uh, young looking woman, uh, gave him a foot massage while he was, uh, on that, on that flight. Um, yeah, so, so plenty of rich and influential people were kind of like turning a blind eye or whatever to, you know, what, what was happening with Epstein and, um, and plenty of people were, were, were fine with it. And then, yeah, I don't know how the QAnon people reconcile the Epstein stuff, um, well, he didn't with, with their crazy world. Um, yeah, I, uh, but I do think that reflects like a general atmosphere of moral ambiguity that is a huge problem in the United States um, right now. I think that like our society has rightly moved past a lot of like a lot of false moralisms, right? Like the moral prohibition against homosexuality, the vague sense that we have a moral obligation to keep the races separate. Like these are these are false and not real ethics. Um, but at the same time, I think we have also moved past in bad ways, a lot of real and valuable ethics, such as the prohibition against lying or the prohibition against violating your own principles to make money. Um, and I think like people sense these things and they want to, they want to feel moral. They want to feel righteous in their day-to-day lives. Um, and believing that going on Facebook and wasting hours a day is a way to resist a global cabal of cannibalistic pedophiles is I mean, not a healthy coping mechanism, but probably a coping mechanism of some kind. Right. Or, you know, the first part of that sentence could have, you know, it could have gone on to being the the people who are, you know, uh, liking and retweeting anti-Trump memes or something and feel like they are accomplishing something like in the real world through like uh, online tribalistic behavior. Um, So maybe this will be the last question. So if, um, if Biden does win, do you have any thoughts on what could happen in terms of political comedy, um, will the, I, I feel like the, the essential, um, you know, message of the Biden campaign is a return to normalcy, like an end to the craziness, like let's, things will kind of be boring again. And, um, and, you know, the, the figure, like the people who, 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 who created the like crazy uncle Joe stereotype about Biden at the onion, like I've since said they regret it um, because it, it made him seem much more likable than, than he actually is. But yeah, I, I mean, I just, the, the fact that he's old is obviously like, you know, is, is an obvious thing you can make fun of someone that's still, we still, I think we still kind of agree. It's okay to make fun of someone for being old. Um, you know, I, I, I noticed on, I noted on Twitter just a couple of days ago that in 1996, the joke about Bob Dole was that he's, he was very, very old and, and he's still alive. And in fact, he was younger then than Trump and Biden are now. Um, yeah. But that was, you know, that was, you know, he's old and boring was essentially the, uh, <laughs> the, the take on, on Bob Dole. But anyway, yeah. What, what do you have an idea of, of where all these things will go? If there is yeah. a lot of presence. Um, so first of all, I want to interject my own unfounded viewpoint here and say that like there's no such thing as a return to normalcy. Um, the Trump did not like burst out of the head of Zeus. Like the conditions of 2015 that allowed him to become president were not maybe they were normal, but they weren't good. 
Um, and I, uh, I mean, the fact that I, he won shows that there was something underneath the surface that was much worse than the average, you know, good liberal understood what was happening. Yeah. I think Trump is a symptom, um, not, not a disease, uh, and, or not the disease. And I think like you do want to treat the symptoms and it's a lot better, um, a lot better to have Joe Biden in office than to have Donald Trump, uh, from my perspective, at least. Um, but I think the idea that what this country wants is to go back to 2015 is, is perhaps misplaced. Um, but two, uh, I was talking about like the question of like where comedy might go after Trump is out of office, um, with a friend of mine named Tyler, who's like very, very smart. Um, uh, and a great guy. Um, and so boy, can he, yeah, he can drink. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he and I speculated that, uh, maybe comedy would become sort of resolutely apolitical, that there would be a, a turning away from politics in comedy. Um, and if you, uh, if you talk to comedy nerds, um, right now, like comedians themselves and like people who, people who consume way too much comedy, uh, my sense of the temperature of that group is they would like to, uh, like to spend a little time with the joke for joke's sake. Um, I think that's why I think you should leave was so popular. Um, I think the, that's a, ne- uh, a show on, a show on Netflix. Um, what, Tim, what is his last name? Tim Robinson, I believe. Tim Robinson. It, it's very, very strange, absurdist, uh, sketch comedy. It, it's, I like it a lot. It's very funny. Yeah, mostly built around like social situations where one person is acting inappropriately, um, which is which is common in sketch comedy writing right now, yeah, maybe forever. Uh, But then he does the turn where everyone sides with the person who is acting inappropriately, and that's the the C. Um, And the problem of where to go after A and B is perennial in sketch comedy. Um, But anyway, I uh, so. The hot dog suit sketch is genius. I, I love that sketch. I think it's really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like the sketch where the women are having brunch and one of them doesn't know how to use Instagram um, and is insulting her friends, but not in a fun, friendly way. Right. Um, right. I think that's really funny. Overall, the the show is not to my taste. Um, like, I think parts of it were good. Or rather, I liked it, but I didn't like it as much as everyone else seemed to. Yeah, and a I, lot of Twitter funny people went you know, went totally crazy for the show and a lot, a lot of parts of it became memes. I mean, the hot dog thing has become a meme a lot. And, and, and especially with like Trump getting COVID, you know, that yeah. I saw mashups of, of that. And so, so with that, just the brief background so with that, someone, um, you know, crashes uh, like the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile into a storefront. And then in the aftermath, they're saying like, who did this? Who did this? And there's, there's Tim Robinson wearing a hot, a full hot dog suit. And he's like, I don't know who could, you know, who could have done this. Yeah, and, we got to uh, catch the guy who did this. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason people, one reason people responded to that show so positively is because, like, it existed out of time, right? I guess stuff like the Instagram, that was timely, but it was not about politics. And it did not, Yeah. it, it expressed a sensibility, but it did not express a viewpoint. And, like, in other words, it was aesthetic. It was not political. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, this is a luxury of the white man, right? I want everything to stop being so political because like <laughs> everything is fucking fine for me. Um, I can hail a cab or like get a seat <laughs> at a restaurant. No problem. Um, so I want to, I want to administer a grain of salt with this idea, but like, I love the joke for joke's sake. Um, I love the aesthetics of comedy 
Um, it's one of the reasons I like guys like Jack Handy and Norm MacDonald and Sarah Silverman. Um, although Sarah Silverman has also like shifted pretty hard in the direction of, of just political content um, in the last few years. But like, I, I love those classical jokes and I, I think comedy is great because humor or funniness is an aesthetic effect that is unfalsifiable. Like two things that you can't fake reportage, like new information you've discovered that other people don't know and you're publishing uh, and humor. Um, You can't, you can fake a profound tone or like a righteous tone, but it's much more difficult to fake a joke. It's either Mm -hmm. funny or it's not. Um, And, you know, Degas to his non disputandum or whatever. Uh, I did not take Latin, but like you can't, <laughs> you can't objectively say what's funny and what's not, but you also can't lie to yourself about what you find funny and what you don't. Yeah. I mean, a, a laugh is, is an involuntary gesture in a lot of ways. It's like a physical gesture that burst out of you. And so it's kind of violent in a way. It's like eruption, you know, and you know, it's been well noted that there's all these, uh, the, the language used around comedy is often very violent, like I killed out there, or, you know, I slayed him, or the audience was dead that night, or, you know, something like that. There, there seems to be, um, <laughs> something, something there. I mean, I think like, you know, there, there is, so, you know, political comedy, it's like put on a pedestal or something. It's like, you know, refined and, you know, George Will maybe does it or something or the Capitol steps or something, but also like mm-hmm. it, there's something sort of cheap about it because at least in our highly tribalized society, like the audience is already on your side. And so, they're primed to sort of laugh in agreement with what you're saying. Whereas if you're telling jokes about, you know, um, like Sarah Silverman has a very funny joke about squirrels and trees. And like, if you know, that is harder to construct, I think. And, and is, shows more like inherent joke building skill. If you're telling very funny jokes about things that are so, you know, so commonplace um, as opposed to like making fun of, um, you know, uh, the orange buffoon, um, <laughs> as one of the Doughboys hosts refers to him often. Um, yeah, so there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of like rah rah for, for my own side in, yeah. in right now in the political comedy world. And yeah, so hopefully, I mean, I think, yeah, we're not going to return to normalcy. Maybe we can, before the pandemic, maybe it's possible to imagine returning to normalcy. Things are not going to be normal, like in the foreseeable future. Um, but I think, <laughs> I kind of think the, like, the promise, the inherent promise of the Biden administration is like, things will be boring again. Biden himself is a boring person and you're not going to have to be constantly worrying about what crazy thing is going to drop next because the boring adults are going to be back in charge. Whether that's true or not, you know, we'll have to see, but I, I think, I think that is sort of the implicit, like put the adults back in charge that, you know, we gave, we gave the class clown the chance to, to do it and he really fucked it up. So time for the adults to, to come back in. Yeah. And I think, uh, just the, I'm a politically engaged person, but I would love to worry less about politics. And again, I think this is a, uh, this is the attitude of privilege, right? Like you don't need politics if things are going fine. Um, but like things are going fine for me. And like, I would like Trump to stop actively making me worry about things going suddenly real bad. And I think that like Joe Biden was not my first choice for Democratic nominee. My politics are probably unrealistically left. Um, but I, uh, I'll take that, but I would like to get to like moving forward again, a politics based on opportunity rather than crisis. Um, the idea that like, Hey, we're alive now. 
Um, gerontocracy is in full force at this point, but 10 years from now, the power dynamic is going to shift a little bit. And like, what are we going to do with that moment when you and I are, I mean, I guess 10 years from now, you'll be what, 36. Um, and I, I, be, I will be 110. <laughs> um, but like, we will have that moment. And I hope that in that moment, we do not try to return to something, but instead like lunge forward and grab something. I think that would be cool. Well, that's an optimistic note. Um, so why don't we, why don't we end it there? Um, so, uh, so where can people, if people want to follow your work, uh, where can they do so? So I'm on Twitter, which is the opposite of work, um, <laughs> at, uh, at Danger Brooks. Uh, Dan Brooks is an extremely common name. Um, I am not the Dan Brooks who writes Star Wars stuff. Um, I'm sure that guy is great, but he's not me. Um, I am Danger Brooks. Uh, I, let's see, what, what's on tap right now? Oh, I wrote a, I wrote a novel about a space monster, um, that nobody wants to buy. Uh, but hopefully I will, I will find someone to do that. Um, and then I have a website. It's by danbrooks.com. Um, and there you can see other things that I have written. Um, it's basically just clippings and stuff. Uh, you can also get in touch with me through there. Um, you can hire me for weird commercial copywriting, which is a substantial portion of my day. Um, and I think you can see a funny picture from my wedding. So, uh, so yeah, bydanbrooks.com. Check it out. That seems like a good, good enough reason for people to go over there. Um, and, uh, and I'm on Twitter at, uh, RASW, so you can follow me there. And, um, so Dan, this was, uh, this was elucidating and interesting. I, I hope our viewers and listeners enjoyed it also. Uh, so thanks for coming on and, uh, we'll see you again next time. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.